Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how are you doing? Doing good, man, and super excited to bring you guys this podcast with Kane from Synthetics. Um, this one came out like two or three weeks ago over YouTube and it absolutely blew up. So I'm very excited to see the download results over uh, over RSS feed. I'm sure it's going to do really great there as well. Um, but this was a super unique and super fascinating conversation. Before we get into that, though, let's talk about our sponsors. First one is eToro. eToro is the number one social trading application. Uh, eToro as a company started in 2013 over in Europe and Israel and have since uh, you know, been on a mission to bring financial inclusion to the world. First, they started by bringing U.S. equities and products to Europe and elsewhere abroad. And then now, since you know, also adopting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, they are bringing their cryptocurrency platform to the United States. So it all comes full circle. eToro's social trading platform is like this really cool social media exchange type experience where you can not only chat and troll and all that good stuff, but you can also trade all of your favorite cryptocurrencies. You can practice trading your favorite cryptocurrencies with a virtual um with a virtual account of like kind of fake money so you can like test out your trades, your trading ability and your charting ability without any um, real consequences. Or you can put your real money on the line and actually track a trader, a professional trader that's on the platform. So you can just follow every single trade that they make. So it really kind of has everything for everyone. If you want to learn how to trade, you can do it there worry-free. If you want to uh, worry-free trade in real life, and get some upside from a professional trader, you can do that it there too as well. Go to b.tc backslash etoro pov. Again, that is b.tc backslash etoro pov to check them out. Again, really sleek spot, and you can pull your Bitcoin out as well. So really, it solves everything for everyone. Check out etoro. I don't know how to do this, but somebody should make a meme about how etoro allows you to make a portfolio of fake magic internet money or trade real magic internet money all in the same spot. I think there's, there's a meme there for sure. Anyways, our second yeah. sponsor. eToro, let's make it happen. Our second sponsor is Celsius Network. You can check them out at celsius.network. They are the newest lending platform around. They have a really sleek mobile app for both Android and iOS. Uh, and so if you guys are done getting railed by the dropping prices of various cryptos, you can instead, instead lend it out uh, either Ether, Bitcoin, or, you know, Monero, EOS, all those types of assets, but then also stable coins as well. So if you've been paying attention to the DeFi ecosystem, you've known that rates have come down lately because of the drop in the MakerDAO stability fee. Uh, and so the, the lending rates on DeFi just aren't as great anymore. Uh, Celsius network is, I think has some of the best rates around. Uh, it's like 5.5% on your die, 8% on USDC and Paxos dollar, uh, and even more, uh, niche, uh, fiat currencies like the Australian dollar. Uh, and so you can check out those rates at Celsius.network use code POV to sign up and get $10 of free Bitcoin. And yeah, download their mobile app in the app store. It's a, it's a pretty sleek looking app. This was a super fun interview. Uh, Kane Warwick has been around in the podcast world lately. 
but at the end of the episode, we talked, uh, we, after we stopped recording, we talked about how uh, this, the topics that we talked about in this particular episode uh, was, has not yet been talked about in most of Kane's other appearances. So uh, I'm actually pretty proud of that. I think we do a good job here at POV Crypto asking the important questions rather than asking what's a synthetic asset. Uh, and so we, we go through the whole gamut of uh, synthetics. Uh, people who have been following me on Twitter have, uh, I've been labeled like an synthetics bear or a synthetics, uh, uh, criticizer, but I don't think that's fair. I'm just, my jury is not yet out on it. Um, I, I think, uh, the, a tweet I put out not too long ago kind of summed it up. Well, SNX is either a really great asset or a really terrible one. And I can't figure out which, um, but it gets a lot of people excited and it's got a whole big, uh, robust community behind it. And so, uh, I respect it for those reasons, and I hope the best for the project. So without further ado, let's get into synthetics with Kane Warwick. Kane Warwick from Synthetics Network. Welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited. Yeah, so for listeners who have been paying attention, uh, I've been, I started to be a little bit, not critical, not skeptical, but maybe maybe skeptical uh, of the value of the SNX token when it comes to value being locked in DeFi. Uh, and so that kind of triggered uh, so, some friendly sparring between me and Kane on, on Twitter. And so we decided to, to bring him on in his great podcast tour as synthetics blows up in the Ethereum world, just to, to talk about some of the aspects of the synthetics network and, and how it relates to the asset of Ether, how it uh, collides with MakerDAO, uh, and just kind of where it just fits into the whole Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, so, Kane, before we actually just get into the questions, uh, do you want to give our listeners a little bit of a background on who you are, uh, how Synthetics came to be, and kind of where it is today? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so before I was running Synthetics, um, well, I mean, Synthetics started as Haven, which was a, another decentralized stablecoin project. And it kind of evolved from Haven into Synthetics uh, that it is now. Um, but uh, I actually ran or run, it's, it's still an operating business, uh, Payment Gateway in Australia um, that supports and supported a lot of the early Bitcoin exchanges um, like bitcoin.com.au, uh, Coinjar, Coinspot um, to allow people in Australia to put cash into crypto. Um, so that business started in like 2014. Um, and yeah, we worked with a lot of the exchanges, um, and that's kind of how I got like deeper into crypto and, and sort of saw this opportunity for stable coins and, and what they would do. So yeah, that was, that's my background. And then how did synthetics come to be? So we started, we started the Haven project, um, with the intent of, uh, building an alternative to tether. Right. You know, so Maker at the time was still, this is, you know, back in like late 2016, early 2017. Um, Maker was still, you know, over a year away. Um, Tether was really the only alternative. And, uh, you know, I was kind of skeptical on the idea that these regulated stable coins were going to you know, emerge, um, which was obviously wrong, <laughs> very wrong. So, you know, when we got to 2018 and like Paxos and TrueUSD and, you know, Gemini, literally everyone was launching a stable coin, all these different regulated stable coins. It became pretty obvious that it was a, a really crowded market and, you know, Maker was doing really well, was scaling really well. It was going to be hard to kind of carve out a niche in this decentralized stablecoin market, given, you know, what was happening in the macro market. So we looked at that and said, okay, what can this platform do that uh, no other platform can do? 
And you know, where we landed was this ability to uh, convert between different assets uh, without needing to match a counterparty. So this idea of, you know, if you've got a synthetic asset, you can turn up and reprice it into a, a different one. Um, and that we saw, you know, a lot more utility in, I guess, than just having a, a USD stable coin. And so when we launched uh, synthetic um, gold, we started to see a little bit of traction. Um, and, you know, we realized that this was kind of the direction we needed to go. And then earlier this year, we launched synthetic Bitcoin and the traction just grew even more. And people got really excited about this idea of being able to have you know, Bitcoin on Ethereum, which is probably, uh, you know, um, not something that some of the Bitcoin maximalists would like to hear. But, you know, definitely there's, uh, you know, it's a nice thing to be able to have exposure to Bitcoin without leaving Ethereum. So so that's that's kind of where we got to <laughs> and and how we uh, how we started to kind of gain traction earlier this year. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm a quite a big Bitcoiner, but I don't really understand why Bitcoiners would be mad about Bitcoin financializing. Like you don't you want Bitcoin supported everywhere? Isn't that how it works? I, I feel like there's an element of like not wanting, you know, same thing for rap BTC and TBTC. It's like you're almost lending legitimacy to Ethereum by like being on there, right? Like it's being co-opted or something. I think there's like that element to it. Um, obviously I don't subscribe to that myself, but you know, I think that's where it comes from. So you yourself, you know, kind of started in the Bitcoin world and um, have obviously, you know, added ETH to kind of your crypto stack um, of networks. How, how do you kind of see these networks kind of playing together? I mean, you know, coming from like the anarchist camp, right? This idea of, you know, having a, a non-governmental money to me was what got me excited about Bitcoin originally, right? Like that was the thing that I think... Um, you know, got me into cryptocurrencies and just the concept itself, right? Uh, but I also like to build things. And I think that Ethereum offers the ability to, you know, build this kind of programmable money that Bitcoin uh, certainly didn't back then and, and, you know, arguably still doesn't. It can't compete with. Um, and so, you know, this idea that you can program all of these, uh, you know, really complex systems and, and, you know, have money kind of flow through them um, as we are doing in DeFi now was like the promise of Ethereum, right? And, you know, back in 2014, 2015, that was still a long way away, but now, you know, we're kind of seeing it play out and it's pretty incredible. Um, so, you know, I think there's a place for both of them. Um, you know, there's a place for both networks and, and, you know, I value both of them and I hold both. Um, but, you know, they have different use cases at these days. I think that's my sense. Christian. Okay. Um, so let's, the, the main thing I want to talk about is uh, the, the relationship between SNX, ETH, MKR, and all the other uh, possible synthetic assets that may or may not come to Ethereum one day. Um, but before we do that, can you kind of just give our listeners who might not be familiar just the elevator pitch for a synthetics network as a whole? Yeah, so, so essentially what we are saying is um, we allow you to take the SNX token and lock it um, as you do into a, a CDP or a vault um, with ETH in the maker ecosystem and then issue a, uh, a synthetic asset against it. Um, and that asset tracks uh, the price of um, something that's in the real world um, via an oracle. Um, and so, you know, you can have uh, debt that's collateralized by SNX that's tracking the price of gold, for example, or Bitcoin or whatever. Um, the big difference, uh, I think, with synthetics versus maker um, is that we have this pool of collateral where anyone can turn up and they can convert 
a synthetic asset. Uh, even if they didn't themselves create it, they, they have the right to turn up to the contracts and say, I've got this synthetic gold and I want synthetic Bitcoin. And the contract will check the price via the Oracle and allow them to burn the synthetic gold and get synthetic BTC in exchange for it. Um, and that additional utility over and above just having a synthetic asset that's kind of floating around being used as a medium of exchange is where we see kind of the big differentiator between synthetics and say maker. Okay, so just to, to reframe that to make sure I got it right. So um, when, you mint, when you mint die with Maker, which is the only thing you can mint, uh, and then you want to have exposure to any other asset, you have to go and buy, sell, trade your die for that other asset. And then you usually go to some exchange like Uniswap or some D, uh, DEX or some centralized exchange, and then there's slippage there. So what you're saying is that within, with this uh, synthetics network is that you can mint debt based off of a collateral using the SNX token. And then that debt is priced uh, based on a particular Oracle that you subscribe to. So if you choose gold, then you're using the gold oracles. And if you want to swap your debt to Bitcoin, you just swap oracles. So you're not actually trading, you're just swapping oracles. Is that the way it works? That's right. Yeah. It never, you know, the, the value never leaves your wallet, right? So you've got a token in your Ethereum wallet that is tracking Bitcoin. And then the next second it's tracking gold or USD or whatever. Um, and I think the most important thing that people often miss about this is you don't actually need to be minting yourself, right? In the same way that, you know, you can use DAI without ever locking ETH in a CDP or locking in a vault. You can just buy DAI from someone and then use it and then sell it. Like these, these assets, uh, you know, you don't need to be uh, one of the SNX uh, minters or, or someone who's locking debt. You can actually just use, you know, synthetic Bitcoin on Ethereum without needing to understand the debt or anything like that. So it sounds like to me, like this really kind of comes down to what's the deal with the oracles? Like, are Bitcoiners going to use this? It really depends. Like, do they think that these oracles are legit? Are, is yeah. this like censorship resistant? Depends on these oracles. Can you talk to us about the current oracle situation? And, uh, you know, I've done some research. You guys are obviously upgrading to what's to come. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, right now it's not censorship resistant at all, right? There's like five people, you could round them up and, you know, chuck them in jail and, and it would basically, you know, require rebuilding the entire infrastructure for the oracles, uh, you know, from scratch, right? Um, in fact, it's even worse than that because the oracles aren't even open source. So, you know, it's this black box that the system is relying on. Um, and it's something that we knew was a problem from the beginning, right? And there really wasn't a viable solution for what we needed um, in the market and, and certainly on mainnet. So uh, we made the decision to go with Chainlink. Um, and, you know, we can debate how decentralized are they or whatever. But, you know, one thing that I said recently on Twitter is like, even if they are still fairly centralized, right? And again, that's debatable. Um, they're far better than us ourselves running the oracles, right? Like it's, it's a very big step change in terms of uh, decentralization because now the attack surface is so much larger. You need to go and find these other guys at another project and, you know, and us and collectively round them all up. So, you know, the more distributed we can make it, the safer it is. And you're not locked down to Chainlink at all, right? Like there are other ways that you could use different oracles that aren't associated with Chainlink. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we're, we've chosen to go with Chainlink because it's the solution I think that's uh, the, 
you know, we've got a complex system, right? And so there's a lot of oracles out there. There's a lot of oracle solutions out there, um, but they're not all necessarily that flexible. And so we have some pretty tight constraints on like what we need from the oracles. Um, and Chainlink so far is the only ones who've been able to meet that. Um, so, you know, in the future that might change, but like for the foreseeable future, certainly in the next like 12 months, um, you know, I don't see uh, anyone really kind of coming along that's going to have a better solution. So what are the, the benefits of using Chainlink over other oracles? I would imagine it's partly um, time, right? Because Augur is technically an oracle, but you can't wait for you know 12 weeks or whatever for a market to close to get that oracle uh, reported to the synthetic system. So what, what are the benefits of Chainlink that make them such a good solution for you? So, I mean, throughput is one, right? Um, and, you know, that's just an obvious one, but there are other oracles out there that, you know, have higher throughput or, or have a lot of throughput. Um, the range of assets is another one, you know, um, but again, there's other um, oracles out there that, you know, sensibly can support a bunch of different assets. Um, I think for us, it's probably the flexibility of the team and their ability to kind of, you know, modify their protocol because they they're the ones who know it, right? So, you know, they're the ones who can say, okay, we can do this, we can't do that. Um, and we've been able to kind of work with them pretty closely to get something that, you know, trades off certain things, but ultimately is a solution that can work for us. Um, and, you know, from what we've seen in the market, there really isn't much else out there that would have that level of flexibility. So, you know, we're, we're pretty happy with it and, and we're hoping that we'll go live by like the end of the year with, uh, you know, some of the Forex, um, the Forex assets, you know, fiat currencies and what have you. And so MakerDAO, when they have all of their oracles, they go, it goes through a medianizer. Is that you guys kind of plan on following that same structure where you take in a bunch of different price feeds and then kind of medianize them? Yeah. So, you know, the Maker Oracle is kind of, I guess, a, a single instance of what the Chainlink Oracle looks like, right? Like at, a, at an architectural level. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the idea. So you're, you're, the, the idea is to have a bunch of price feeds for every single asset, synthetic asset, and then it all goes through a medianizer. That's right. Okay, yeah, cool. that's the idea. Yeah. And have those people be incentivized to provide the data, et cetera. If you were to rank how censorship resistant and I guess anti-fragile, you could rank Chainlink and that as a source from like one to 10, 10 being Bitcoin, one being sense, you know, CFI you know, how would right. you kind of categorize them? I mean, it's hard right now because I think, uh, you know, you kind of need to see the practical uh, implementation, you know, like a theoretical thing is, is one thing, right? Um, so, you know, Chainlink has a few price feeds that are, um, that are being published, like the ETH price feed, for example. Um, and I think the ETH price feed, if I'm, if I'm correct, has like 20 or 30 nodes um, running it. Um, so, you know, in terms of, how distributed are those people? How connected are they? Could you, you know, round them all up, et cetera? Like definitely you could. Um, but I think over time that grows and it becomes harder and harder. Um, so I'd say right now, like maybe it's like a, a five or a six, um, which again is still far better than, you know, the one or two that we are right now. Um, but, you know, it kind of isn't constrained. Like you're never going to get to auger levels potentially, but, you know, um, uh, as David pointed out, like there's a trade-off there, which is, you know, throughput, right? Like we need something that doesn't take 12 weeks to, to resolve, right? That's perfectly decentralized. So I think, you know, maybe you can only get to like eight out of 10, for example. Um, and that's just one of the constraints of using oracles. 
And I suppose you could scale up or down the number or decentralization of oracles based on how value the collateral is, right? So like totally. SBTC probably needs a lot more oracles than maybe S gold. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd like to get into kind of what the main purpose of this uh, podcast episode is, is uh, SNX as collateral versus Ether as collateral. And so um, my first love in, in the Ethereum space has always been MakerDAO because it has a really elegant relationship between DAI, which is, its, uh, which is a synthetic asset, MKR, which is like the governing equity of uh, the MakerDAO bank asset. And then there's Ether, which is like the gold, the, the reserve asset. Uh, but what Synthetics has done is decide, has been uh, a little bit more uh, faster in that loop, as in it's just been self-referential, as in SNX is the collateral. It's also the governing token. And then it also is a claim on the... No, it's not. But it, it uses itself to collateralize. Uh, and so uh, I've always I've pushed back against the Bancor uh, protocol for, for kind of displacing what I view as Ether's role as the collateral of... Uh, Ethereum. And, and um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of explain why SNX is a good, the best collateral, or, or maybe it's not, maybe you think Ether is a better collateral, or just to kind of go through the, the rationale be uh, behind SNX being like kind of a, a self-referential system. So I think, you know, when you look at collateral, right, there's liquidity is the thing that people really point to with Ether, right? It's obviously, you know, it's like the second most liquid um, crypto asset, right? Or maybe third, I guess, after Tether, um, you know, technically. But, um, you know, it's it's infinitely more liquid than uh, SNX is right now. Um, and so on that dimension, you're not going to compete with it, right? Um, but when you use Ether as collateral in a system where there's no coupling between the demand for that system and the value of Ether, um, or if it's very loosely coupled, uh, you run into an issue where Ether can move um, against you or for you within that system and the system has no feedback to kind of control that movement right you're it's like you you've kind of you know uh lash yourself to this sail and you're just riding the ocean and it doesn't really matter what you do you're going up and down and you have no control right um and i think that that's something that uh creates potential issues um and the the view for us with using snx as collateral was you want something that has the ability to kind of value it, right? You want a, a stable kind of valuation methodology. And one of the challenges with Ether is it's hard to kind of get a stable valuation methodology. If you ask 10 people what the price of Ether will be in 10 years, you're going to get a really, really wide range. Whereas if you went and asked 10 people what the price of Apple will be or Tesla or Uber, yeah, it's a wide range, but it's not, you know, orders of magnitude wide. Um, and so I think ideally we've created SNX to be this token that will capture the value from the system. And so in order to understand how to value SNX, you need to just look at the system and say, how valuable do you think this network of you know, trading synthetic assets will be? And the SNX token is that network. You know, it's the, the token that represents it. So you can then value the token, which means you've got a, a really tight coupling and feedback loop between the value of the token and the value of the network. How, how do you go about, like, I guess, it, in a slightly more detailed way, like, how would you go about at any point in time looking at SNX and trying to subscribe a value to it? So there's fees, right? So if you stake the network um, and ignore the inflation rewards and all that stuff for now, but, um, you know, SNX is enabling the service, right? 
Um, and this is my, my personal view of what the power of DeFi is the ability to allow um, a distributed group of people to collectively come together and agree on a set of rules and have smart contracts that enforce those rules and provide a service that they couldn't individually provide. And then when the people who are consuming that service pay them, the fees or you know whatever the thing that is being paid for that service is distributed to all the people who provided the service. And that's something, it's like a, a method of organization that just wasn't possible before. And to me, that's the most valuable part of DeFi is this idea that you know we can have these systems that have you know self-enforcing rules and we can create new services that couldn't exist or or you know exist much more efficiently than they would otherwise exist you know in the traditional finance ecosystem or, or world and so for us it's like how much demand is there for trading synthetic assets and how much will people be willing to pay for it and you project that out and then work out okay this network is worth x you know or some multiple of x can you go through the illustration of, of how SNX rewards kind of mimic a early blockchains uh, rewards kind of with block rewards and, and all that stuff? Yeah. So, so the interesting thing, I guess, is in the early days, right? And this is, this is something that we missed. And I think a lot of, uh, of networks, you know, a lot of, uh, of tokenized networks on Ethereum miss this as well. Um, this idea of artificial scarcity versus paying people in uh, sort of protocol rewards to understand the system. And I think, you know, one of the most brilliant things with Bitcoin is um, the only reason why I ever learned how to install mining software is because I wanted Bitcoin. You know, I wanted to be able to mine Bitcoin and get Bitcoin to be paid by the protocol for me to care enough about it. If I didn't have that ability, I never would have got into Bitcoin, you know, because I like to tinker. I like to install things and, and, you know, play around with stuff. And when you just have this token that kind of sits there and, and doesn't do anything and doesn't incentivize you for understanding how it works, um, there's no feedback loop there. So earlier this year, we made a decision to change the monetary policy and go from a fixed supply to an inflationary supply and to pay people who were actually staking the network in that inflation. Um, and essentially that was just to try and bootstrap the network when the fees were low. Um, you know, so trading volume at that time was like a few thousand dollars a day, right? Um, and so the fees were negligible and there was no point in, in actually staking. But once the inflationary um, rewards were created, all of a sudden you were being paid to know how this thing worked when someone else who was just passively holding the token was being inflated out. And so there was this like system of rewards and punishments to, to kind of get people to care about it. And it worked really well in it, and it's kind of created this feedback loop. So once the inflationary rewards kicked in, uh, kind of uh, illustrate for us what, where did all the incentives change. And so you said, like, if you just hold the SNX token, you're kind of getting inflated out. So how did the mass psychology of the SNX network kind of, sh where did it shift to? So, you know, it was interesting, right? Because we were very worried about this. Again, you're coming from like a, a Bitcoin mindset a little bit, like playing with monetary policy is like, you know, just not okay, right? Like you just can't do that. Um, or if you do, you know, it's, uh, it creates a lot of problems. And so, um, you know, we were really worried that the community was going to reject this change. Um, but what was interesting is the community that existed, you know, in earlier this year were kind of the, the hardcore people that had held on, you know, all the way through the bear market. And they were actually happy because they'd spent the time to understand the protocol to be paid to actually do what they're supposed to do, even though they weren't really doing it yet. Um, and so when we launched uh, the staking rewards, I think the, um, the, the percentage of tokens that were being staked was like less than 20%. And almost all of that was the foundation and team. 
Um, so, you know, it was, it was a few uh, percent of actual external people were staking and now it's up to 80%. So it's, you know, it's, again, it's created this really powerful feedback loop where people are, are strongly incentivized through high inflation early and tapering inflation later, um, you know, to work out how to stake, do it and actually participate in the system. Off the top of your head, do you know the difference between the inflation and the network fees as a ratio? It, it varies a lot. Um, and I think the yield, um, the last numbers I saw were the yield on the fees was about 5 to 10% APR, um, and the yield and staking rewards was about 100%. So, you know, call it 10 to 20 times higher. Um, I think that ratio has shifted in the past and has been more like 5 to 10 times. Um, but, you know, clearly in the future, as in, you know, in the next two to three years, we need to get to a point where uh, the actual fees are equal to, if not more than the staking rewards. Otherwise, you know, you're just in this kind of self-referential system, this circular system. So, uh, so to finish that up, what is the monetary policy of the token? Like, does it go to zero? Is there constant issuance? What's up with that? So it actually goes to zero right now. Um, so when we implemented this change, uh, this was before we had kind of open governance. Uh, we set it to um, taper off uh, after four years to 250 million tokens from 100 million. So we basically added 75% inflation and then halved it over the course of four years. Interestingly though, our community uh, has decided that they don't like that monetary policy um, and several members of the community have kind of banded together to uh, essentially put a proposal um, uh, and SIP as we call them uh, to change the monetary policy um, and in addition to that to add a terminal inflation and the reason why they wanted to add that terminal inflation is because we have uh, external incentives like our Uniswap uh, incentive um, which are, are paid to Uniswap LPs um, to get that very large synthetic ETH pool that we have. Um, and they were worried that if we didn't have, you know, tail emissions that, to be able to pay for that and incentivize that, that could potentially fall off, right? Um, and so, you know, that, that's something that's being debated at the moment. I think we've kind of reached consensus and it's looking like it's going to go through. So that will change the monetary policy and, um, and add a tail emission, essentially. I find this to be very interesting. The first is that like, I guess I want to kind of better understand what your thoughts are, what the the synthetics community's definition is of finding consensus. Cause I know that you guys have more of a rough consensus kind of a situation. There's no formal voting or anything like that. And the other thing is like, do you actually have this worry about um, if inflation completely dies, will a network die? Right. Like you could apply that to BTC. A lot of ETH holders generally have that concern about BTC, but I guess, you know, in the synthetics case, they're also kind of applying that same heuristic and changing the monetary policy, you know, even proactively before it even becomes an issue. Yeah. So, so I think on the rough consensus, you know, we've seen a number of times in the last even few months, right. Uh, these issues of like, you know, plutocratic governance and, and on-chain governance that, you know, cause networks to be captured and, uh, and people to become, you know, kind of pessimistic or, you know, have this chilling effect in terms of their participation in governance. Um, and so I just, I, I'm very wary of the fact that the foundation has significant um, holdings, you know, the team has significant holdings. There's a number of uh, large holders that could easily sway votes. Right. Um, and, if we had, for example, with this, uh, with this inflationary change, had a token vote, 
my initial response was to say no, right? So I would have voted against it. Um, so even if we didn't go through with a vote itself, just me saying, I don't like this, could have potentially had this chilling effect of, well, this can't even pass, right? Instead, they were all like, actually, this guy's an idiot. Let's just keep talking about this. And eventually I was like, you're right. I was wrong. Like, we should totally do this, right? Um, that just can't happen in an environment where it's like, no, I'm going to whack you with my like, you know, 80 million tokens and going to win, right? People just go, well, what's the point? Um, so I think that's the answer to the rough consensus uh, question. Um, in terms of do we need perpetual inflation in order for security to exist? Uh, you know, I think our model probably captures more value in fees and the fees are a lot higher than the Bitcoin model. Um, you know, and, and it's possible that we can survive without any inflation and ideally you know, we should be able to. Um, it's a, certainly an open question whether Bitcoin can. Um, maybe I'm just too much of an optimist and, and I think that it can. Um, but, you know, it's a long ways out uh, before we need to kind of uh, deal with that, I guess. So my, my sense with Bitcoin is the status quo kind of wins by default, unless there's a really, uh, you know, high consensus. And within our community, it's much smaller and it's easier to reach consensus. And so, you know, status quo is not do nothing. It's typically like, let's look at this and be proactive. Is there, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say kind of on that line, again, kind of researching what you guys are doing, like a lot, it sounds like in past interviews, you've talked about needing to find consensus even to construct products, like adding a, a new basket and stuff like that. Um, personally, I'm very skeptical that you can scale rough consensus in a manner where you're actively trying to find consensus, if that makes sense, right? Like yeah. rough consensus works when you don't want to find consensus, when you want, you know, Bitcoin is for enemies, that kind of idea. But when you need mm -hmm. enemies to put together a DeFi basket or whatever, that, that's kind of a different ask, right? Can you kind of yeah. talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, we saw it play out, right? Like, you know, rough consensus does work for like these large changes where it's so large that we really need, you know, 80, 90, 100% uh, agreement, you know, to kind of even contemplate making a change like this, uh, this change to the monetary policy. And so with the monetary policy, we've just let it play out. We've just kind of, it's taken, you know, probably this has gone on for like three months now of debate back and forth and different people coming in and, and weighing in with the DeFi basket. There were a few kind of loud voices that were able to derail it and it like missed one release and got kicked back. And so like, I think your point is pretty valid, rough consensus trying to like come up with a, a product necessarily um, may not be sufficient. Um, and so we may need to kind of split that off into uh, different things where maybe there's a product team but maybe that product team that's kind of designing or, or choosing the assets to be added, you know, similar to how MakerDAO has, you know, their risk management team, right? Um, to kind of silo that. And that won't necessarily be a core team. It might be, you know, members of the community, large stakeholders, et cetera, who will kind of work together, uh, you know, as part of maybe like a, a sub DAO or something to kind of make those decisions. And maybe the community needs to then reach 90% consensus to block what they're doing. Um, but, you know, the default would be let them do their thing and, you know, then people can kind of, uh, you know, passively accept it. But these are all like very experimental things that we're talking about. I mean, I could, I could keep riffing on this, right? Like, <laughs> it, is the goal of synthetics to be like censorship resistant? At what point, like, what what is good enough in your mind? I think good enough is a moving target. 
right? So, you know, what was good enough two months ago is probably not good enough now. Um, certainly if the project is succeeding, right? Like if, if the project is growing, getting adoption, volumes growing, um, you know, I've made this point a couple of times, right? Like we're in Australia. So we're, you know, we're domiciled in Australia. And right now it's pretty clear that, you know, we exist in a, a fairly, um, you know, gray area of the regulatory landscape. But if the market or the network gets to be, you know, two or three billion dollars, like someone's going to say, there's this $3 billion network around the corner, like someone needs to be looking into this, right? So, you know, I think we need to be, we need to be sufficiently decentralized for the environment that we're in um, with like this forward looking, you know, attempt to kind of uh, stay ahead of it. So that's, that's kind of the best answer I've got, I guess, is, is as to how we're approaching it. Um, the next thing I was going to ask is like, one of the big things about DeFi is like, you know, remains to be like a non KYC situation. It's permissionless. You don't have to create an account to get in. Like, obviously like governments aren't fans of no KYC. Like if you see all the, every central institution, even, you know, Paxful and local Bitcoins and all of those, they all have to have KYC. Like, is that something that you think about? Like, and if it comes down to like KYC or shut down, like what happens to synthetics at this moment? Yeah, so so I think there's two things that are in our favor here. One, we're not matching counterparties. So, you know, we do not provide a trading venue per se, right? Which just happens to be kind of a, a weird byproduct of just the mechanism that we've designed, right? So you never trade with David. You turn up and you, you know, reprice something in the contract. The, the funds never leave your wallet. Um, now, is that sufficient to, you know, prevent us from ever having a regulator ask a question about KYC or something like that? Probably not. But in the meantime, I think it's sufficient. And so, you know, what we're looking at and something that we're, we're exploring pretty actively is how do we get to a point where we can essentially um, have no legal entity, right? That it is a fully decentralized network. And, you know, uh, this is something that where I think there's a bit of divergence between us and Maker. Like, we're not going down the path of, you know, trying to get licensing from regulators or, or whatever. We're going down the path of become more and more decentralized to the point where we are unregulatable. That's ultimately our goal is to not be regulatable. So in that same note, um, aside from the oracles, are there any backdoors to the synthetics network? Are there any like privileged abilities by certain parties that the community just won't have access to or don't have access to? So, I mean, the entire thing right now is essentially a backdoor. Right. Like all of our contracts are sitting behind proxy contracts and, you know, the team can unilaterally change any of them. Right. Um, I think it's it is getting to a point now where if we were to do something like that um, and, you know, arbitrarily change things, given that we have good, this governance model and say we're not going to propose a SIP, we're just going to randomly do something. We are getting close to a point where you could potentially see a fork happen. Right. Like it's it's not, you know, it's not beyond possibility right so there is that i guess credible threat from the community especially given that there's a lot more engineers outside of the core team than inside the core team now um, that are interacting with the network uh, that that could happen um, but ideally what we want to get to is a, a point where uh, rather than having uh, a privileged ability to upgrade we don't want to lose the ability to upgrade right now in the short term we want that to maintain that ability it's, it's kind of fundamental to what we've done but we do want to put uh, some kind of a DAO-like framework in front of it so that uh, the system is essentially uh, administered by a group of distributed individuals that's not, you know, some core team members, some 
you know, as I said, stakeholders, et cetera, um, which I think once that step is implemented will be sufficient to kind of get us past the next, you know, regulatory uh, kind of wave, if you will. And so for adding a new synth to synthetics, uh, all you need to do is plug in a new price oracle. Uh, I'm going to guess that that is not something a, the community can just like plug in, right? That's something that's kind of controlled by the team. In the future, is it going to be, are you going to be able to just like plug in a price oracle and make it synthetic? Yes. So yes, right. Um, you know, and I guess this is kind of the, the interesting question about like product design and who decides that sort of thing, right? Um, once we're with Chainlink, really what needs to happen is someone needs to ask the Chainlink nodes to actually publish that price, right? So let's say Palladium, which is something that weirdly people want for some reason, right? And it's like, okay, it's just a thing. I don't know why. And they're like, all right, we want Palladium, right? And so they need to go to Chainlink or to the Chainlink node operators and say, can someone source a Palladium price fee, right? And the Chainlink node operators say, yes, we can. And this is the cost of operating it. And, you know, this is how many nodes we'll have. And so they collectively put that together. And now you've got a Palladium price feed that's on Ethereum. Once we've done that and we're paying for it by, you know, consuming that price feed, uh, then we need to actually have it integrated into the protocol. Um, the, the integration into the protocol is actually pretty easy. It's more a question of risk, right? Is Palladium an asset that we want to have in the network? And someone needs to assess that. And that's where I was kind of getting to having these like siloed teams that, you know, potentially are responsible for like assets and risk and risk assessment, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, the, essentially the rest of the network needs to trust that that team's doing a good job. Um, and, you know, potentially the way that that would be administered is this idea of like having almost a representative democracy, right? So like someone would say, I want to join the risk team. And if enough people vote for that person, then they can join it. And if the risk team's doing a shitty job, then people can pull their tokens and you know, those people no longer have control and cannot actually add or vote for a new, uh, a new, you know, asset being added again, like these are all still very experimental things, but I think they're things that, you know, in the near future need to happen for us to scale. So how does Uniswap fit into the picture of synthetics? Uh, to my knowledge, Uniswap has a pretty uh, critical role with just how synthetics interacts with Ethereum. Can you kind of explain that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's kind of an amazing, uh, you know, asset for us to have, right? Like this idea that you can have this permissionless, uh, you know, place for counterparties to be matched, right? And again, you know, it's a bit weird because it's pooled counterparties, not, um, you know, direct counterparties being matched. But this idea that you can have these pools of liquidity, which are critical for us to allow people to move in and out of the system, um, you know, going from ETH into synthetic assets and, and back out again. Uh, and it's being operated and, and run and is not part of our system, but is part of the DeFi ecosystem is, is um, pretty incredible. And so, you know, that's something that's super valuable for us to, to have access to and allows us to have this on-ramp and obviously we incentivize liquidity being put in there um, which is where you get this like symbiotic relationship between uniswap and synthetics um, and you know it's it's again it's something that if uniswap didn't exist we would have to replicate all that functionality you know and the same thing for kyber right like if kyber didn't exist we'd have to replicate that the same way that maker built oasis decks right because they needed something and they, so they just went and build it themselves um, but now we're lucky enough that we don't need to you know, build, don't need to roll our own DEXs, thankfully. So I guess uh, what I'm kind of curious about is, and I think this is along the lines of why David 
is he wants he wants these applications to hold ether is because it's good for ether like it makes ether stickier it makes the 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 value go up like how stuck is synthetics to the ethereum blockchain or can synthetics become like that the snx token become a multi-chain token like tether or some other um utility tokens like you know it is snx like a system that is its own system and is it like really attached to ether it's a, it's a really good question, and I think a lot of people forget about this because it's kind of back in ancient history of last year, but we actually explored moving to uh, other chains, or at least supporting other chains, right? So we looked at um, EOS as one example, um, and a number of other ones, but you know that was the closest one to being viable, I guess, at the time. And the reality is that like there's just not much happening there, right? And you know, in order for DeFi to work, composability is kind of critical, right? And so if there's nothing to compose because there's just, you know, this ghost town sitting there, well, then it's kind of pointless to go and build another house in a ghost town, right? Like no one's going to come and visit you. Nothing's going to happen. And so I think for the foreseeable future, you know, it's, it's kind of Ethereum's uh, game to, to lose more than anything, right? You know, DeFi um, is very entrenched in, in Ethereum and the, the kind of switching costs of trying to move out of Ethereum and, and scale something i mean we've seen a number of different networks try it and there's really not much happening over there um you know on, on any of those ethereum killer networks so certainly for me as you know someone who uh is as close to you can be an ethereum maximalist from a smart contract perspective you know i still love bitcoin but like if we're talking smart contracts then you know i'm an ethereum maximalist and i think that that it, it's it's not going to be something that's going to be reeled in or or you know caught up by another network in the short term at all so keeping with the analogy of two different towns uh, and, and also going back to the conversation that we slightly touched on and then move off of, which is Ether as a as collateral, I see there's two kind of, a, there's a partition here versus in Ethereum versus uh, synthetic. So you have the Ethereum side of things, which uh, it, it looks like it will use MakerDAO to turn Ether into a synthetic asset. All you have to do is change the price feed to die to the price feed of something else collateralize ether and then mint, you know, uh, synthetic, whatever, synthetic Tesla, die, die Tesla stock or whatever. Um, and so then there's that trifecta between, uh, MKR ETH and the synthetic that the die, whatever that, that maker mints. And then you have, uh, synthetics, which is basically that whole system. Once MakerDAO opens up, uh, the die price feed to be an anything price feed. And then you, but you have synthetics, which is already doing that with, uh, for now centralized oracles and SNX. And so uh, do you see these systems uh, in competition? Because that's what it seems like to me. I mean, I, I think, you know, so many of the things that we're doing in DeFi have some element of competition, right? Like, you know, DYDX, Compound, full, like Fulcrum, this, you know, Kyber, Uniswap, a lot of the things that we're doing are trying to replicate traditional financial services, right? And those, you know, it's kind of amorphous, like what is you know, uh, this particular service versus another service, right? So there's a lot of adjacency and, and a lot of, uh, you know, overlap between these services. Um, but I think my, you know, as an Ethereum person, that competition is great, right? Because it's still happening on Ethereum. So I don't have an issue with, you know, even like we see it with the, the DEX aggregators, right? There's been a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, drama with the DEX aggregators competing with each other. Like, I think it's great that we've got multiple DEX aggregators on Ethereum that are, you know, plugging into Uniswap and Kyber and 0x, et cetera. Um, so all of that is good for Ethereum. 
you know, so long as the competition is happening on Ethereum, then it's good for Ethereum. Um, I don't think that every single DeFi protocol needs to have ETH embedded in it for ETH to get a benefit from that protocol. You know, if something is building a service and it makes sense to make that service in a way that doesn't require ETH, but it's running on the Ethereum network, that's still a net positive for, for Ethereum, right? Um, and so, you know, whether, uh, you know, people use Maker more or us more or whatever, the fact that there's two projects is actually not enough. We should have 10 projects trying, and, and, you know, we do to a certain extent, there's UMA, um, you know, there's market protocol, there's, there's a bunch of people working on synthetic assets and, and derivatives on, uh, on Ethereum, but that's great. Like the more people that are trying to build these things, the better. Um, and we need different design choices. If every single team comes in and is forced into the same design choices because of whatever norm exists in the, the system of like, you have to use ether or we'll shun you. Um, that I think is, is bad for competition. And, and, you know, we want the best projects and the best uh, platforms on Ethereum not to be constrained in their design space by like things that look like they're working now. Yeah, let me take this one. Um, okay, so say for example, Synthetics opens up Ether as a collateral and then say it also opens up BAT for collateral and then Gold for collateral and you know, multi-collateral Synthetics. Well, we just got multi-collateral DAI and if you have multi-collateral Synthetics, what, what's re what remains as the differentiator between the maker system and the syn Synthetic system? I think there's a, a kind of fundamental design choice that is, is embedded deeply in both of those protocols. One is sort of siloed liquidity, right? Like each asset lives in its own liquidity pool. And in order to cross those liquidity pools, you need counterparties to be matched, right? Between them. With synthetics, we've made a decision, which is a riskier decision, right? But again, I would argue the fact that these two decisions exist on Ethereum is a net positive for Ethereum because who knows which one's going to play out and, and be better. But we made a decision to pull all of the risk into a single pool and all of the collateral into a single mm -hmm. pool and to allow anyone to turn up and trade any of those assets against you know this contract. Um, that is a really powerful use case for Ethereum and, and hopefully um, you know will be something that users will really want to use. And we're already seeing wallets you know getting excited, integrated, etc. So you know, again, I, I think having different approaches to these problems is 100% a net positive for Ethereum. So can you, I again have two questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to silo the questions and ask the first yeah. question. The first <laughs> is, can you kind of talk about like, so you're silo, you, you are siloing all the um, collateral together and then essentially you have oracles and people can issue their aspect part of the collateral to different oracles and hopefully it all works out to be net neutral so there's not like any fractional reserve or fractional debt owed right can you talk about like what happens in the case that there is like a run on the bank and like you know some sort of like fractional debt outstanding like what does that look like so so we kind of know what it looks like because it actually happened um so we had an oracle hack uh back in july um oracle outage whatever you want to call it which was a combination of our oracle failing right which is another reason why we don't want to be using our own oracles because it's just a more fragile system with a single point of failure like that um and on top of that we had front running bots that were taking advantage of uh a block time latency and reading the mempool to be essentially trying to exploit the price updates right and what happened was this oracle you know fell over um the price that it was feeding into uh into you know mainnet was wrong 
and the bots were taking advantage of it. And so they were able to generate, um, I think it was about $11 billion worth of debt, right? And that $11 billion worth of debt was collateralized by about $15 million worth of SNX. So at that point, you've got an insolvent system, right? Like it's, it's not, there's not enough collateral to, to back. Uh, I mean, that, at that point, you've got the normal banking system, right? A fractional reserve banking system. But in this case, you know, it was, it was not sufficient to allow people to exit, obviously, right? Um, so that is something that we have a, a number of mechanisms built in that ideally, if there isn't an Oracle outage, that doesn't occur. Uh, but one of the big risks in the system is if a lot of people are long crypto, for example, or, you know, they've got a, a long uh, exposure and there's some kind of black swan event where the price does genuinely change in the real world for some reason. And, and there's this huge move, um, then the system could become under collateralized. Um, and if the system's under collateralized, it's the same thing as if, you know, ETH were to drop to a dollar today, all of the die that's outstanding would be under collateralized. There wouldn't be enough die. Uh, sorry, enough ETH to cover all of the outstanding die, um, and that would you know lead to uh, you know global settlement, and then Maker would be printed, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, so there's some interesting analogies there between Maker being the kind of buyer of last resort and, and SNX being collateral, but that's a rabbit hole we can we can avoid potentially. But um, you know, essentially the the situation there is we need to have all of these mechanisms to ensure that the debt never exceeds the outstanding collateral. And one of them is to have a really high collateralization ratio, which is 750%. So we can absorb a, a, a large move upwards in debt without too much, uh, too much hassle. So that's, that's kind of the long way to answer to that, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I mean, 750% kind of uh, looks like you're being very, very conservative. Um, I guess I, curious how that system is competitive amongst like other systems that don't need 750%, but I actually don't want to jump into that rabbit hole. I kind of sure. want to talk about something that I actually think the system is really cool. Uh, I'm more interested in, in this type of a system than I am in maker because it kind of almost creates a market for people to hedge themselves for SNX holders to hedge themselves properly. Right? Like if you see that the system is supporting you know, 50% of the entire system in like, you know, a BTC or any other synthetic asset, even ETH, the, those people are also incentivized to go and buy that asset, you know, off the market, you know, in the real world, right? So I'm an SNX holder, lots of BTC is being synthesized. I want to hedge by buying BTC myself. Like, I think that that is very interesting because it creates a market dynamic to collateralize buyer holders. Um, which I think is very, very interesting. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? So, so I, I think I, um, I kind of hinted at this, right. When I was talking about like what I think DeFi is and, and, you know, the power of DeFi, I think. Um, so we have this ability to create the system, which there is an analog, right. In the traditional financial world, which is a clearinghouse. So, you know, a bank, or, um, you know, or some kind of trading firm might operate a clearinghouse where you can essentially trade against that clearinghouse and their job is to hedge your trades, right? And to try and avoid, you know, blowing up. So a lot of the bond market used to be, uh, you know, done this way where, you know, large banks would kind of accept any trade and they would, you know, match orders in the background and they would kind of absorb the flow and, and internalize it um, and then hedge it, right? We've got this kind of interesting model where like you're doing that same thing, but without the bank. So instead of, you know, maybe 10 or 100 risk people or, you know, a thousand traders in a bank collectively trying to work together to, to hedge their risk, you actually have this market of 
potentially tens of thousands of people that are all trying to hedge, right? And are unlikely to all be moving in the same direction. So ideally, you've created this situation where you've got this system now that, okay, anyone can come and turn up and trade. But to your point, if I see BTC is moving this way, I might go out to the spot market and hedge. If I see that, you know, there's a lot of equities being purchased, I might go and hedge or being shorted, I might go and short in the spot market. And now I'm essentially acting as this like, you know, conduit, right? A, a small part of this huge conduit to allow people to trade against this thing. And the people on the other side of this don't need to have a brokerage account or, you know, a CME account or, you know, be able to trade uh, futures of gold or whatever, right? Um, they can just have an Ethereum wallet and an internet connection. And they can now hold all these different assets and trade them. And they don't need to know what's happening in the background. That's the job of all these people kind of competing with each other to you know, hedge uh, the exposure to this debt pool as effectively as possible. And I mean, it's the same thing with Uniswap, right? Like this idea that we can all collectively be uh, a market maker by just dropping collateral into this pool and, and you know, we can walk away, right? Like these systems couldn't have existed in the past or, or would have required a lot of legal overhead and, and operational overhead and, and you know, technical overhead. And now we can just write a smart contract and drop some funds and it works. So the super high collateralization requirement, the 750%, that's not because SNX is a, a illiquid, not, so, not super high market cap coin. That's because that all of the assets that are synthesized by SNX debt could be, right? Yes. It, okay. I mean, it's both. It's both, it's both. right? Like it's a, in the same way that, you know, maker is going to have to work out, you know, if rep gets added, what's the collateralization ratio, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and someone will have to assess that and, and make a determination. We've just made a determination that for the sake of protecting the debt pool, as well as the lack of liquidity in SNX, we need something like 750. Um, you know, and, and as the price of SNX has gone up recently, we've even considered raising it to a thousand. Mm. Um, I mean, to the, to the question earlier, I guess, about the efficiency of capital there. The nice thing with SNX is it only does that one thing. So you're not competing with, you know, some other uh, use case for ETH, for example, right? That someone will say, well, I don't really want to put ETH into this thing because I'd rather put it into compound because it yields higher. With SNX, it only serves the purpose of providing collateral for this network. And so when Ethereum collateralization comes online, what, will there be a different collateralization requirement? Uh, yeah, it'll be lower. It'll lower. be lower. Okay. Do you know by how much? We don't know. We're up still to, debating to the it. community? Like 110 to 150 seems to be the consensus right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's some different constraints around it mm-hmm. that, you know, ideally as low as possible. Is there a timeline on when Ether collateral will, will be a thing? <sighs> we're, we're trying to get it done by the end of the year. Um, I think it's going to be a struggle given, mm-hmm. you know, that we're, we're getting close to December now. Um, I think it'll be one of the first things that happens early next year, most likely. Okay, cool. Now, I think this is a pretty good place to wrap it up. I think, I thought this was a really, really interesting mm-hmm. interview. I really appreciate the time and uh, I learned a lot, learned a lot for sure. Awesome. Thanks guys. Yeah, it was, it was good fun for sure. Kane, what are just the, the short-term next, next steps for synthetics in addition to what we asked? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, we talked a lot about oracles, right? We need to get that sorted out. Um, we talked about governance. We need to sort of formalize this process of governance and, and get it to a point where it isn't just a, a core group of people that are maintaining the network. Um, and then we have um, Ether Collateral, uh, which is a, a large product change. 
Um, and then something else, which I think most people don't realize is we're actually working on uh, synthetic futures, essentially, right? So these synthetic mm, cool. positions, wow. um, which will be, that's when we start to get close to like the, you know, decentralized BitMEX model, right? Mm, mm-hmm. um, which is something that, you know, I, I tweeted about it today. Like we're seeing this transition towards DEXs, you know, Uniswap and Kyber are doing crazy volumes, um, you know, volumes that people said were impossible a year ago, you know, eight, $10 million a day in volume on, on these DEXs. I think that's going to be 80 to a hundred million, um, you know, sometime next year. And it's just an obvious next step is for futures platforms to, to migrate across the DEXs as well. Um, and there's some trade-offs that, you know, work in their favor significantly over say a BitMEX or a Deribit. So um, once that's live and we have either collateral and we have all these other things to, to kind of shore up the system, I think we're going to be in a better place than we are now. Great. So if somebody wants to join the synthetics community and maybe take part in synthetics government, how can they do that? And where should they go? Uh, they can go to discord. Um, we've got a pretty vibrant discord and you know, people are happy to answer questions and, and help out. Um, you can obviously follow, uh, synthetics on Twitter as well, or follow me on Twitter. Um, you know, we talk a lot about synthetic stuff, but definitely discords the, the first place to jump into. What are the handles for you in synthetics? Uh, synthetics is, uh, synthetics, uh, underscore io um my handle is a bit weird maybe you can add it to the link or something like that yeah. so it's a it's a bit we'll hard to, to track um and then uh from the <laughs> synthetics twitter there's a <laughs> i've been on twitter for too long um but yeah so um there's a uh there is a link to discord on twitter as well uh, so you can follow that from the synthetics twitter to, to discord and jump in there and get amongst it Awesome. Kane, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, I've honestly, I've heard amazing things about your community. That's probably one of the things that uh, gets shilled the most on Twitter. So uh, whatever you're doing with the incentives, it seems to be working. You guys can find the show at POB Crypto Pod on Twitter. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks. David? You can find me at Trustless Date, both on Twitter and on Medium. All right, Kane, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, guys. Really fun. See ya.